Let's open our Bibles. We're back in Luke. Luke chapter 13 will be in Luke to the rest of the year. Uh, please read ahead. God has some great stuff for us. Our reading today is Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. This is God's word. So this morning we're starting a three-week series where we're going to look at the more difficult or hard sayings of Jesus, particularly in Luke 13 and 14. And they're hard. In fact, if you're honest, just listening to that, they're very disturbing. Because seemingly on the surface, you know, we struggle with them. At least I hope you do. I mean, think about what we just heard. Someone asked Jesus, are few saved? Do you ever think about that? Are few saved? You hear these weird statistics like only 10% of the people that ever live will go to heaven. And that's disturbing. Uh, most of us, I think, that are Christians, see the world through God's eyes now. I know when I go to a ball game or I'm in some large stadium, you know, I enjoy the ball game. But at some point I look around at 65,000 people and I think, Lord, what is the eternal destiny of these people? Are they going to heaven? These are hardworking, good people. They're stand-up citizens. Will, will they be in heaven? Will they be in hell? And they hear Jesus say the door is narrow, and then there's people that are going to bang on the door and they want to get in and they can't. Uh, very disturbing to me, and I think it should be to you. Next week, we're going to look at something equally disturbing, where Jesus says, if you want to be your, my disciple, if you want to be a follower, you have to hate your mom, your dad, and your children. Now, these are the people we love and, and, and all we have in life. And Jesus said, no, you've got to hate them, or you can't be my disciple. And then the last one. Uh, the parable about hell, the rich man and Lazarus, probably the most disturbing, because it's final. Hell is final. And Jesus talked more about hell than anyone in the Bible or anyone who ever lived. So these are very disturbing, difficult, hard sayings. You know, most of you have daily devotionals, right? I visit your homes, usually in the bathrooms, a daily devotional, or in your bedroom. and They're wonderful scriptures, right? Every daily devotional has Philippians in it, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and wonderful Proverbs. But you'll never find the narrow gate in a devotional, right? It just doesn't fit. It's too difficult. It's too hard. We don't like it. we rather talk about turning the other cheek or loving one another or... Uh, Jesus saying, where are your accusers? I have none, neither do I accuse you. You know, that's what the Bible should be, right? But what do we do with difficult sayings? What do we do with a difficult saying like, it's easier for a rich man to go, I mean, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a sewing needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's no way you can look at that scripture the way, other than the way 
Peter said, Lord, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. So these are disturbing. They're, they're meant to be disturbing. They are hard sayings, and we need to look at them. Now, I realize when we gather on Sunday, when we're around each other, these don't bother us, right? You know, when you read them, you scratch your head. I don't understand it. Uh, but Jesus said it, I believe it, and we move on, right? But what happens when you get in cubicle world or the university? Or you're in a heated debate with someone who's shooting holes through your faith, leaving you breathless. What do you do? Many times we don't know how to defend our faith. And now we have the new atheists who are writing books, seizing upon these things, taking them out of context. So, question, what is a difficult text? What's a hard text? What's a disturbing text? It's a text that seemingly on the surface in its natural reading doesn't line up with the character of God and the precepts for living that we find in the rest of Scripture, okay? Like we know God is love and God is benevolent and then all of a sudden we come here and we're like, what is going on here? People are knocking at the door and they can't get in. That doesn't seem like God. Now notice what I didn't say. I didn't say it doesn't line up with the way you think God should be, okay? You know, W.C. Fields wasn't a religious man, but one day he was looking through the Bible, and somebody said, Mr. Fields, I never thought you would read the Bible. What are you doing? And he's, he's skimming through it. He goes, looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. So a disturbing verse in the Bible is not that you shouldn't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's not a disturbing verse. That's very clear. Everybody should understand it. But Pastor Bob, I'm living with this person, and God knows we're in love, and he knows the financial situation in America, and I know they're not a believer, but I'm going to win in the Christ, and, you know, I know there's that hard, difficult verse in the Bible. No, it's not a hard, difficult verse. God is loving, and he wants to spare you from a life of anguish. That's an easy verse. Today we're looking at a difficult verse, a disturbing verse. God is love, but Jesus overthrew the money changers in the temple. Again, we're looking at this because 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should sanctify the Lord in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in us. Someone comes up to you, you should be able to give a reason for this scripture. You should be educated, learners, followers of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you come across a text like this in your reading, there's three things you need to do. You might want to write these down. Number one, always read the verse in its context. It's one of the reasons why we teach through the Bible. Now, we'll do series at times, and I'm going to do a series on Israel in the fall, but most of the time we're going through a book of the Bible. Why? Because chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you are looking at something in its context. You can't hobby horse around pet doctrines. Every preacher in America would love to talk about the love of God every single week. Every preacher in America would want to talk about healing and spiritual gifts and forgiveness every single week. Some preachers would love to talk about the end times every single week. Some do, okay? But if you're going through a book of the Bible and looking at things in its context, you've got to talk about suffering and pain and loss. So what does it say in its context? And then you have to ask yourself, what is the literal, historical, grammatical understanding of the text? This, 
This boggles my mind. We pick up a, a book of fiction or nonfiction and we read it, and then when we think we read the Bible, we read it a different way. No, we read it the same way. What was the author communicating to the hearers of that day? So when Jesus here says the gate is narrow, we know there's no physical gate, right? When you leave this building, there's no gate that says kingdom of God. So we know here Jesus is talking about a way of life, a pattern of living, a path. When you read a text in its context, it's called exegesis. It means to draw from the text. Uh, The problem with Christianity today is there's many churches, TV ministries, where they're reading into the text. They want to tell you you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and then they go find all the scriptures to support it. The second thing you want to do is ask yourself, what does the preponderance of scripture teach? Uh, Pre-Civil War in America, while slavery was going on, uh, there were some ministers, not as many as it's made to believe, who would actually teach that slavery was biblical. They would take a verse in Timothy where Timothy said that masters uh, should treat their slaves well and slaves should honor their masters. And they said slavery is of God. It's talked about in the Bible. But when you get into the context, you understand that Timothy was writing in a first century world where slavery um, was in almost every part of civilization. It wasn't as much ethnic as it was here in America. It was more um, monetary back then. And so here's what Timothy knew, that people were getting saved across the board, and in God's new community, like we're gathered today, if you're a slave or you're a master, leave all that at the door, because we're all blood-bought now, we're all redeemed. If you're a CEO or a plumber, leave it all at the door, we're all one in Christ, we all bear the image of God. The preponderance of Scripture says that we were made in God's image, Every hair in our head is numbered. He formed us in our mother's womb. He gave us dominion over cattle and creeping things, not over our fellow man. So the preponderance of Scripture abhors slavery and the abuse of power. And then finally, seek God. You know, when I was a young Christian, I would call the guy that led me to Christ, and I would ask him a question a day, okay? And I've led people to Christ, and they asked me a question a day. And then I realized, you know what? I'm going to start writing these questions down between me and God. And then over time, watch God answer them. Sometimes it takes five years, ten years. You'll hear a sermon. Ah, I get it. Or you read something in a book. Yeah, I get it. Or God answers it. And you know what? When that happens, it's more real. It's between you and God. God wants to be sought. We're in a relationship with him. So ask him your difficult questions. So today we begin with a man... Asking Jesus, will few be saved? And I know that's always bothered me. Now, I don't know why the man asked the question. I think I know why. He was Jewish, and Jewish people believed that all Israel would be saved. They thought they were God's chosen people. They thought there would be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. They thought they were just, and all Gentiles were unjust. But now Jesus comes along, and he's upsetting the apple cart. He's telling Jewish leaders that they're whitewashed sepulchers. He's telling Jewish leaders that uh, they're teachers in Israel, but they don't have basic understanding. He's cleansing the temple. He's using Gentiles as the heroes of his story. And they're saying, like Peter, "Um, are few saved, Lord? Now notice Jesus doesn't answer the question. And uh, when you read the Gospels, I'm amazed. Jesus never answered speculative questions. Or hypothetical questions. 
And the funny thing is, when you and I sit around, isn't that mostly what we do? We have all these hypothetical questions. Um, I was a curious and probably obnoxious kid. And uh, I knew my, gr- my grandmother was a fearful person. And she lived in South Philly. But to get to Atlantic City, which was their beach, you had to go over the Walt Whitman Bridge. And she didn't like bridges, but there was no way around it. And uh, I knew that. So every time we got on the bridge to the top of it, I would always ask her, you know, Graham, what would happen if this bridge collapsed right now? Um, so I'm curious. I ask these hypothetical questions. Jesus would have never answered my questions. His answer can be misunderstood. Lord, are few saved? Jesus' answer in verse 23, or verse 24, he said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. And some people look at that as, oh man, I've got to strive. I've got to walk the straight and narrow. I've got to be a goody two-shoes. I've I got to make sure I get in that gate. It's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying here, Lord, are few saved? He doesn't answer the question. Basically, Jesus was saying, don't look around at situations that are above your pay grade. But look at your life. Don't worry about a billion Muslims. In the Middle East, don't worry about a billion Hindus, what's going to happen to them. What about you? Are you saved? Because the judge of all the earth is going to do right, and you're only going to be judged by the light that has been given to you. Basically, Jesus said, leave the rest of the world to me. But what about you? His admonishment was, strive to enter the narrow gate. Uh, especially for some of you young people, can I tell you a surefire way not to succeed in life? I mean, to really never get ahead and make anything of your life? Worry about what everybody else is doing. I used to tell my kids, get to practice a half hour early. I'm not going to practice a half hour early. My friends aren't going until five minutes before. I'm not going to be the first one there. It's weird. It's Remember what our parents told us? If Johnny jumps off the Brooklyn Bridge, are you going to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge? Surefire way to not succeed is to look around and wonder what everyone else is doing. What's God have for you? The Bible says don't look to the left or the right. Keep your eye on the prize, Paul said. What does God have for your life? Well, God told me I should be a missionary, but my parents said it's too dangerous and I need to get a college education. What is your goal? What's God saying? See? There's a parable about the workers where one came at 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, and 3. And they all received the same wage. And one guy finally stood up and said, wait a second, I've been here since 9 o'clock. Why is the guy at 3 o'clock getting the same wage? The thief on the cross was the 9 o'clock worker. Somebody's going to get saved 30 seconds before the rapture at 3 o'clock. But we're all going to inherit eternal life, one way or the other. Jesus said, don't look around. Keep your eyes on your own life. The two problems with these texts, one, the gate's narrow, and probably the crippling part is the people pounding to get in, and God says, I never knew you. Good people, religious people. So let's address these two. Let's start with the narrow gate. Again, the, the narrow gate is not really a gate, it's a, it's a path of life. And by the way, there's only two paths. In all the Bible, there's two trees, two paths, two ways, two roads, two gates. God made it easy. Uh, Joshua said, there's a way that leads to life, there's a way that leads to death. It's for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
Moses said it. Uh, Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with the Beatitudes. He talks about everyday living, anger and lust, and kind of felt needs. And then he ends by saying, some of you will hear my words, and you're going to take my words, and when major decisions of life come, you're going to use your understanding and your knowledge, your natural mind and common sense, which is good, and then you're going to overlay God's word and prayer and the whispers of the Spirit, and you're going to make life's critical choices, and you'll be like somebody who built your house on a sure foundation, on a rock. Others of you will hear my words. You'll like hearing them uh, in settings like this. But when it comes to choices, you're going to use mostly your natural mind. Um, When difficult times come, you're going to look at how they keep score in the dominant culture, and that's how you're going to make your decisions. And these two houses will look the same, but one's built on sand, and the only way you'll know the difference is when storms come. And trials come, and judgment comes, and it's coming. The door is narrow. The road is narrow. This is what drives people crazy about Christianity because we claim exclusivity. Why is there a narrow gate? Can I tell you why? All truth, by definition, is narrow. What's one plus one? Can I ever make it three? It's pretty narrow, isn't it? How about gravity? Anybody like the law of gravity? It's the only reason you're on this planet, right? Okay? But if I get too close to this stage, I'm going to fall. And here's the funny thing about truth. It's not forgiving. If a toddler was here, a 90-year-old, it doesn't matter. You take one step, you fall. Because truth, by definition, must be narrow. Now, it's also narrow because of all the other options. Now, all the other options are under one door, one row, but they are many. And you get all these options out there, and Christianity looks very narrow. What are some of the other options? How about there's no God? Now, not many people will fess up to this. I think there's only about 2% atheists in the world. But most people are living like there's no God. The famous atheist Richard Dawkins took out an ad campaign campaign on London buses where he wrote, and I quote, There is no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. He's brilliant, by the way. Isn't that wonderful wordsmithing? Stop worrying. There is no God. Just enjoy your life. The Epicureans believed that in Paul's day that earth was made up of matter and particles. Second option, very popular, is that all roads lead to God. We've all heard this, right? And the rationale is, well, you know, Hindus, Muslims, people in different religions, all pray, all fast, all give, all are benevolent, um, they're all good people, so they're just following God in their way, but all the roads, if you follow them, lead to God. Third door is to work real hard. Get on the spiritual treadmill, Give a lot, pray a lot, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad in the end. Now, I told you truth by definition is narrow. And if you don't follow the examples I've already given you, how about this one? Say you have a senior in your house this year. She wants to go to Harvard. Does she just apply to Harvard and that's the end of it? No, the truth is if your daughter wanted to go to Harvard, she would have started in grade school. She would be attending summer camps and taking... um, courses on how to improve her SAT score 
and things of that nature. Why? Because the, the entrance requirements for Harvard are very stringent, very narrow. It's a very narrow door. Few get in. One of my favorite books, Lone Survivor, story about Navy SEALs in Afghanistan. The movie doesn't show, but the first five chapters of the book is all about becoming a Navy SEAL. If you ever watch the television shows, they weed most of the men out. Why? Because lives are at stake. So if you want to become a Navy SEAL, the door is narrow. Um, If you want to be a doctor, the door is narrow. Now the problem is, what do you call the guy who graduates last in medical school? Yeah, doctor, that's scary, isn't it, right? But it's still strict, right? So let's apply truth to these other doors that I talked about. How about there's no God, stop worrying, enjoy your life? Yeah, that works if you were born in the middle of the 20th century in Western democracy to middle or upper class parents of privilege. But what about the 100 million people who died in two world wars? And what about the people that lived under tyranny of Idi Amin, Joseph Kony, Mussolini, Hitler, Hussein, Stalin? Could they really enjoy their lives? What about all roads lead to God? Ravi Zacharias in his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, uh, and he's from India, talks about how every religion claims exclusivity. In other words, Muslims aren't over there saying, isn't this wonderful, all roads lead to God? We just happen to be Muslim. No, they think Allah is the only way. And the same with Buddhism and almost every other religion. And then there's the idea, have you ever studied other religions? Have you ever studied the belief systems of some tribal religions that we think, oh man, they're back to nature, they have good ideas. Yeah, but get in there and see how convoluted it is, especially when it comes to women, children, and marriage philosophies. Dinesh D'Souza, who was Indian, came from India, uh, went to Dartmouth College by God's grace. And when he got to Dartmouth, it was the 70s, so it was peace, love, and people were following Eastern religions. And one guy came up to him and said, Dinesh, man, you're, you're Indian. That's really great. That's awesome. And Dinesh said, tell me what's great about it. The caste system, karma, how women are treated, you know, arranged marriages. What, tell me what's great. He went on to say that some of the most God-forsaken outposts on the planet are the result of false belief systems and the power of man over his fellow man. What about working your way into the kingdom? 1 Corinthians 13 has been relegated to weddings. But Paul said, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In other words, Paul is saying here, yeah, all religions pray. All religions can practice spiritual gifts. But if love's not at the core, it's nothing. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries, but if I have not love, I am nothing. And Paul said, if I give all my goods to feed the poor and my body to be burned and have not love, I'm nothing. I can give $100 million away and it's not going to cover up a hard heart. And you go on the rest of that chapter, it gives a definition of love. Love's kind, love's long-suffering. Plug your name in and by the end you'll be repenting. Because the only way I can fulfill 1 Corinthians 13 is with the agape, that's a Greek word, love of God in me, a transformed heart. So one by one, we see all these options, 
going by the wayside. And we're left with this narrow door. Now, can I tell you something positive this morning? Something really good, good news, because that's what the gospel is. In 32 years of experience, here's what I found. When I walked through, the door was narrow. It wasn't popular. But now that I've come in, the room is large. See, the world promises a broad road. Free sex, free sex, free love, free, enjoy your life, stop worrying. There's a broad, do what you want. But the end is destruction. The narrow way says, here's the truth, here's the way, Jesus is the way. And then when you get through, there's this ever-opening horizon of God's grace. Uh, recently, I'm reading Brian Houston's biography. He's the lead pastor of Hillsong Church in Sydney, Australia. And it's a worldwide ministry now. They have churches in every gateway city in the world. They're most famous for their music that we all sing for the last 20 years. They sold 16 million albums last year. And he was talking about how at eight years old, he wanted to be a pastor. His dad was a pastor. And at 22 years old, he started a church in Sydney with four members. And they rented this gym, and where he was preaching, there were gym ropes literally hanging. And he could tell when he was preaching these four people that all they were doing was looking at the ropes. So he finally got sick of it, and he jumped on one of the ropes, and he swung out into the crowd, these four people. Well, those four people went to work that week and said, hey, we go to this really neat little church that just started where the pastor actually swings out into the congregation. And uh, eight people came back that week, then 16, and then, you know, it became a, and he stopped swinging on ropes, of course, but the idea is very small beginnings. And he would look out his window and think about what God could do in Sydney, Australia. When I was reading his book, I was floored, knowing this would be my text when I returned, that this is his life verse. I mean, we could probably go a month of Sundays before someone would say this was their life verse, right? Philippians or, you know, 1 Corinthians. You know, we'd have so many life verses before this one. But his opinion is the Christian walk has gotten greater every year. That's why Paul said, I still can't apprehend that which I've been apprehended by. I can't apprehend these new horizons and the mercy that's new every morning. And then you start seeing people fall by the wayside who went through other doors, other paths. And, you, and, and what do we say when we go through times of suffering and death? I hear it a thousand times. I don't know how people without God do this. To which I say, I know how they do this. Alcohol, drugs, illicit sex, that's how they do it. Brian Houston went through a very dark period in his life, like we all will. Storms came upon his house. He came through it. A couple years ago, a major Hollywood studio came and said, we want to do a movie about Hillsong. And the backstory on this was there was a producer who was in Sydney, attended a Hillsong conference, was so moved by it. When Hillsong was doing a conference in L.A., he took his director, and they approached Brian Houston and said, we want to do a movie about your church and about your movement, and not only are we funding it, we're paying you. And that movie will be out this fall in theaters. I recommend everyone go see it. The door is narrow, but the room is very large. Are few people saved? I have no idea. It's above my pay grade. 
I know God loves people more than I do. I know he loves my mom and dad more than I do. I know he loves your kids more than I do, more than he does, more than you do. He loves them more than anyone. But can I give you an insight, my own little insight? Look in your Bible across the page at chapter 14. There's a parable in verse 15 called the parable of the Great Supper. It says, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus said this to them, a parable of a certain man who gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to come to those who were invited, saying, come, now all things are ready. No invitations in that day, by the way. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, I have to go see it. He has to be excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, that's like an F-150, and I'm going to test drive them. I have to be excused. Um, Another said, I married a wife, I can't come. You know how many times I've heard that? Um, So that servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. And bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servants have mastered, it is done as you commanded, and there's still room. Then the master said to the servant, go into the highways and hedges, compel them to come in. And what's the heart of God? That my house may be filled. I don't know if you are saved, but heaven's going to be packed out. It's going to be jammed. And let me tell you this. Everyone got an invitation. Every person who's ever lived got an invitation. I don't know if it was a message in the bottle. I don't know if it was a tract. I don't know how God does it. It's above my pay grade. But the judge of all the earth will do right. Everyone got an invitation. The idea that I found the right door and walked through it is ludicrous. In Revelation, it says God comes and he knocks on the doors of people's hearts and he compels them to open up that he might dine with them. See, it's about relationship. Everyone's invited. God's house will be filled. And I don't know, you know, we can get in the argument of sovereignty and free will here. That's above my pay grade, by the way. I think both are true. I think the, the, the narrow gate says whosoever may enter. God so loved the world that whoever would believe that Jesus was the Son of God, would be saved. Whosoever may enter, and then when you walk through, the other side will probably say, saved from the foundation of the earth. I love what Moody said, Lord, save the elect, and then elect some more, okay? I'll stand with Moody on that one. That's, that's my pay grade, me and Moody together. He was a shoe salesman. All were invited. God's house will be filled. How do I know? Because John in Revelation was standing around the throne of heaven. And by the way, you're there in some weird inception way. He saw you around the throne. It's weird. Um, He saw the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the angels. And they were singing a song. And John was blown away. And guess what John did? He tried to write us the number of people. And so John, as best as he could, said there were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. In his day, that was like saying... uh, there were 100 trillion people there. He, he had no, con, no way to communicate the number. It was so large. Which leaves us with one final thought. What about the people knocking that are told they're not allowed in? 
I'd let him in. Wouldn't you? I mean, if I was on the other side of that door and somebody was saying, Lord, uh, let us in, we prayed, we did, I, I think I'd let him in. And then I'd just ruin heaven. Where the Bible says there'll be no wretched thing there, no whoremonger, no brawler, no sorcerer. I would have ruined heaven again. How many people saw the Noah movie with Russell Crowe? Don't lie, you're in church. Okay. <laughs> Some of you were afraid, waited for DVD. I know the deal. So we all saw it. We thought, oh, that's unbiblical. So I convinced my wife to watch it, and she hung in for about a half hour, and then those rock monsters came out, and she's like, you're going to be judged for this, you know. <laughs> but I only saw it because Keith Schleifer, our men's leader, endorsed it, so... But there was this one scene that drove me crazy where the ark, the ark door is closed and Russell Crowe is like fighting people off that want to get in. And I'm screaming out, no, you can't tell people that. God wants people to be saved. You know, Noah would never be cold cocking people to get them off that ship. And then I thought, wait a second. Wait a second. And I, went, I literally went back and read the story of Noah. Hebrews tells us that for 120 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You know what that means? It means for 120 years, that door was open. But that door wasn't attractive. Jesus said in Noah's day, they were eating, they were drinking, they were giving in the marriage. It was business as usual. And that was not an attractive option. Until the flood came. Until storms came. But see, there's finality in life. We don't like it, but there's finality. And the Bible says God shut the door, which meant he was in the ark with those people. And when that ark was closed, grace ended for that world. The Bible tells us the age of grace will end in the time that we live. The door's wide open right now. You could have cursed God for a 80 years, and on your 81st year, you can walk through. Right now, today, it's open. We live in the age of grace. If you're a whosoever, you can get in. But there's coming a day where the door will be shut. Now, the people that couldn't get in, look what they say. They said, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he'll say, I never knew you. And they're like, wait a second. Uh, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught our streets. We remember you. You turn the loaves and fishes, you know, fed everybody. Yeah, we, we, remember us? We live right down the street. We went to the Methodist church for 35 years. I was at Calvary Chapel every single week, Lord. You don't remember me? I gave in the Christmas offering every year. Very disturbing. I never knew you. Never had a relationship with you. Never was a part of your life. You never thought about me until this door closed. Some people might be sitting here, and I know the way it works. You, you, you kind of heap doubt on yourself, and you're going to walk out of here and say, see, I thought I overcame this. Now Pastor Bob left me in a place where I don't know if I'm saved. So let me give you some assurance. This can't happen. It's hypothetical. But if I died and the door was shut, um, I would not say this. I would knock on the door and I'd say, Lord, I was a sinner. And I thought I was saved by grace. I thought the cross was a place where you said it was finished. 
And that salvation was a free gift, nothing I could earn. And Lord, I thought I'd be in heaven based on your work. See, the whole Sermon on the Mount is worthless if the first verse doesn't apply. That blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The only people that will be in heaven are those who got down on a knee and said, there is a poverty in my spirit that is so large that only God's amazing grace could allow me to walk through that door. That's why the book of Ephesians says we're saved by grace. It's through faith. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. The good news, we live in the age of grace. We need to go out to the rooftops and compel them to come in. But I'll tell you what I love about this text. He goes on to tell them that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's why. Because you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, to sit down in God's kingdom. Now the Jews... Knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be there, they're Jewish. Prophets are going to be there, they're Jewish. But what would have blown their mind, and, and they had an idea, but it, was, but it was kind of messianic or kingdom age, kind of, that people would come from the four corners of the earth? Wow. Now, you think the door is narrow and you wonder about people groups all around the world? Think, of, think that one through. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to sit down with people from all over the world. So let's finish with this one. Where did Christianity begin? Jerusalem. Jesus dies. Christianity begins to spread. Now, think of every other world religion. Every other world religion still has its headquarters where it emanated from. So in the 6th century, Islam comes along and it's centered in Arabia. And even though there's Muslims around the world, that's still the center of Islam. And Asia is still the center of Buddhism, and India is still the center of Hinduism. But Christianity starts in Jerusalem, and because it doesn't start from a power base, because it starts from a people group that have almost no power, it begins to spread, mainly to Asia Minor and North Africa. You know, places like Alexandria had great bishops, great churches. Then it moves on into Greece, and then finally makes its way to the people groups of what we now know as Europe, the Anglo-Saxon white people, that we think is the origin of Christianity. It's not. They were actually barbarians at one time. But the gospel finds its way there and for a thousand years makes them the people they are. Then it comes to America. And wherever it goes, wherever it becomes powerful, it starts to decrease and then it moves somewhere else to reach marginalized and these people on the highways and the byways. So for every book and every writer that gives you the death knell of the church and gives you a statistic like only 2% of people believe in Europe and America is going on that slope, don't worry about it. Do you know why? Because in 2050, 75% of all Christians will be in the southern hemisphere. And worldwide evangelism done to major cities around the world will be done by people of color. Because the gospel is east, north, south, west. It's not Jewish. It's not where you were raised. It's not Calvary Chapel. It's every person invited and God's house will be filled. Can I show you the narrow gate? 
There it is. That's the narrow gate. Because only one person could have ever gone in there. Sinless. Suffering. Spotless. The wrath of God coming upon him. He's the only one that ever went in there and ever came out. And when he came out, he said, whosoever would call upon him, he would save. It's the greatest life. It's the only life. It's the only truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that Scripture interprets Scripture. And Lord, as a judge, you must judge sin. You must judge evil. And Lord, we know you're the judge of all the earth and you will do right. Lord, may we take a little bit of this time and pray for the people that we love. And Lord, if the people that we love won't hear, Lord, if we tell our relatives over and over again and they won't hear, then Lord, let us go to people that we don't know. People that you love as much as our relatives. And give them a reason for the hope that's in us. This joy, this purpose, this community that we live in. Lord, the way is narrow, but this room is wonderful. You are such a good God. And we love your grace. In Jesus' name.